that's why if you fast forward, it's so remarkable that an anti-federalist by the name of Thomas Jefferson would decide in 1802, we need a professional military class in this country. Hence, I'm going to establish the United States Military Academy at West Point. It's not in keeping with his position earlier when he is fighting against Hamilton and, in fact, Madison about the Second Amendment and this fear that if you have that the the state will be taken over by the federal government. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Second Amendment. Moses Sash enlisted as a private in the Continental Army in August 1777, serving in the 7th Massachusetts Regiment around West Point, New York. Sash was a farmer and laborer in civilian life, was 5 feet 8 inches tall, and listed as an African-American. When the war ended, Sash was discharged and returned to his home in western Massachusetts. On September 2, 1786, a large group of men, mostly revolutionary veterans, assembled at the local courthouses, armed with guns, swords, and with drums beating and fifes playing. Shays' Rebellion, named for Daniel Shays, a former Continental Army captain, was one of the first major threats to the Articles of Confederation. The Massachusetts governor called for his militia to quell the revolt and to prevent and suppress all such violent and riotous proceedings. Sash had joined the protest. He was part of the pell-mell retreat of the regulators following their failed attempt to capture the United States arsenal at Springfield, Massachusetts. This scared the founders because Shays and his men were using the revolutionary rhetoric. They were talking about liberty. Liberty meant the absence of coercion, taking away their fundamental rights. Because they're using the language of the revolution, this terrified the founders because this was the rabble. And as a result, rebellion really is going to add impetus to the focus on Philadelphia. We've already had the meeting in Annapolis in 1786. This proves that the Articles government is not working. We have a mob mentality, and so we must have some type of order. There's no regular army. Thus, when Shays and the farmers rise up in revolt, it's going to be Massachusetts militia that puts them down, which is going to add, you could almost argue that this is going to get to the Second Amendment. States with a well-established militia and the right of individuals to bear arms. I'm your host and narrator, Michael Sears. Joined by legal scholars and military judge advocates, we outline what your rights are as they are shaped by the Second and Third Amendment of the Bill of Rights. We'll find out just how both of those amendments, the right to bear arms and the quartering of troops, have similar connection. What are the colonial origins and interpretations of the right to keep and bear arms? Why are the words in the Second Amendment so securitous? What were the intentions of the founders? And how and when were they changed? Is there a connection between original intent and the rights and rulings today?
This is a bonus episode. Why bonus? Well, this series has been about the connections between the Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. We learned that there are important similarities and interactions. With free expression, citizens have basic fundamental rights. Those rights can be modified by commanders to ensure good order and discipline. We learned that searches in the Fourth Amendment are a bit different than inspections on a naval base. And we heard that Miranda rights actually came after UCMJ 31 Bravo rights. And now we're at the final two amendments of the Bill of Rights. One, one of the most controversial and contentious, and the other, that some people believe may in fact have no basis in the modern world. And the question of their interactions with the UCMJ is a good one. That said, these two amendments actually have significant roots, probably the most significant roots, based in government expression of military might and power. And that's where we'll start with this, the last episode of the series. This is Professor Mary DeCredico, Department of History at the U.S. Naval Academy. Jefferson wrote, and I quote, the strongest reason for the people to retain their right to keep and bear arms is as a last resort against tyranny. It's pure luck. Jefferson go on, goes on to say, we need to protect ourselves, our state. Great Britain still has outposts of royal troops in North America. We have the Spanish. We have the French. Uh, we have Native Americans. We need to be able to protect ourselves. And that means having state militias and also having individuals with the right to bear arms. Now, what's also interesting is that by 1802, when Jefferson is president, he is going to decide that militias just aren't cutting it. The American experiment has always been informed by a concern and a fear of a strong central government. That basically goes back to King George. The colonists had to quarter British regulars if there were no barracks. And the flashpoint became the colony of New York because there were barracks in New York City. But the governor of New York insisted that private citizens also quarter troops. Because this was so widespread throughout the colonies and because it was resented, it's infringing upon property in many respects. The founding fathers, when they meet in the Constitutional Convention, they are determined to have a specific amendment that prohibits the government from placing soldiers in the homes of noncombatants. No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in the time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Third Amendment. It's, it's sort of an interesting amendment when you, when you think about it, because um, we wouldn't expect to see that today. Uh, I think it's also in, enlightening that one of the things that is so important, particularly during the colonial period, is that you do have local militias because life on the frontier is so incredibly unpredictable. And that at that time, everybody has a weapon. It's, it's a matter of, of survival. But what is the right? Is it the collective responsibility to maintain a well-oiled weapon and dry powder and to be ready to go at a moment's notice to join your fellow citizens in a well-regulated militia? Or is it an individual right 
to own and maintain a weapon for your own safety. Um, Anti-federalists are terrified that by having the individual rights will be taken away from the states in order to have uh that it will be vested in the central government, in the federal government. And they do not want that to happen. They want to protect the independence of state militias. Americans have this, in some respects, and it goes back to the colonial period, a love-hate relationship with the military. There is grave fear of a standing military, and it's largely because of the experience with the British regulars. The British are a professional military organization. These are professional soldiers who are trained just to do that. And Americans, the colonists, and into the early national period are, are very wary of a standing army for fear it will become a vehicle not only to oppress them, but that it will be politicized by a president. And then you could argue in some respects that fear is borne out by Shay's Rebellion, by sending armies to put down popular revolts. One of the things that bothered soldiers like George Washington was how reliable are the militia? Citizen soldiers, they're playing at being soldiers. And that was, I think that's what the amendment is getting to. We need to have a militia system. And you see this take root in the colonial period and the early national period where you have officers They may be elected. They may be commissioned by the state who are going to be in charge of these units and ensure that they drill, that they have discipline, that it's not a mob that's armed. And that's important because it will be these militia. I'm thinking of Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. I mean, there is a talented military leader who gets his bona fides by wiping out Native Americans, but he is going to take, and soldiers he had at New Orleans were rabble. You've got some of the crooks from New Orleans, Jean Lafitte and his crowd of pirates. But Jackson is such a firm disciplinarian that he is able to take these men who know how to use firearms and route the British, a professional army. So I think that's the operative word, well-regulated, meaning they are drilled, There are specific, and you see this throughout the 19th century, the militia have specific days when they drill, specific weeks when they get together. Hence, you can see the the parallels with the modern-day National Guard. So the founders were fairly explicit. They spoke about a well-regulated militia and your right, and frankly, your obligation, to keep and bear arms. But do they mean to exclude your right to own a weapon, irregardless of the militia? My name is Mitt Regan. I am a professor of law at Georgetown Law Center. I'm also a fellow at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the U.S. Naval Academy. That right was, I think it's fair to say, the, the, the historical record is not crystal clear on this, but I think it's fair to say that that right was assumed to exist. Uh, that is that people in the course of ordinary life would have arms to go hunting or to defend themselves. And that's why it was reasonable to assume that the broad group of unorganized militia would have these arms available and would keep them in good repair so that they could serve if called forth. So. One way to think about it is that the very premise 
of the militia serving as a force to defend the country was that citizens ordinarily in daily life would have arms that they could use when they reported for service. The states themselves didn't provide them, right? It was the individuals who did so. Because again, remember the founders are wary of a professional army. They're wary of someone reporting and then the state providing weapons, um, right? That would suggest sort of a professional kind of endeavor. So in that sense, as I say, I think the background implicit assumption was that people would have arms in the course of everyday life. And the what we might call the nuclear option today is that the founders did believe, and obviously the country was a product of this, that if the government becomes tyrannical and unresponsive to to demands, that the people had a right to overthrow it. And therefore, that it was important that they not be disarmed by the government completely, because that would then essentially deprive them of the ability to do that. So it's not exactly straightforward what the founders were driving at with the Second Amendment. But before we get into the case law, let's look at the connection point between the Second and the Third Amendment. I'm David Luban. I'm a professor of law and philosophy at Georgetown University Law Center. And I also have the uh, honor and privilege of being the distinguished chair in ethics at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. The Second Amendment is uh, one of the most famous and most hotly discussed amendments in the, in the Bill of Rights. And almost nobody's ever heard of the Third Amendment. So it's a, it's a protection against having soldiers quartered in your own house. And the Supreme Court has never heard a case about it. And it's really something that's close to dead letter. I think there's only been one federal case in history about it. So why, why should we even be talking about the Second Amendment and the Third Amendment together? And it turns out that the reason is that there uh, is a, a lot of, uh, that there's a collective history of the two of them. And what's important to know is that the Second Amendment and the Third Amendment were kind of a package. Um, and they were packaged because of uh, uh, something that is called the Standing Army Debate. The Standing Army is what today we would call the U.S. military. Um, standing just means that um, it exists. It's not just improvised or called up by a sudden draft anytime there's a conflict. It, uh, it's a, a kind of permanent institution. So after, uh, after the revolution, when George Washington was president, his initial proposal was that there would only be 25,000 people in the army. And uh, I should add that immediately after the revolution, the army was shrunk to just a few hundred men. And the thought was that 80,000 would be the state militias and the state militias would be the major instrument of national defense as they were in the War of 1812. Uh, in the War of 1812, state militias were 88% of the U.S. troops. Now, over the years, in the early part of the 19th century, uh, the use of militias 
kept going, but sort of tapered off. And the last time they were really used as a fighting force was in 1842 um, in the Seminole War. Um, by the time of the Civil War, there was so much dislike of militias and really shirking that the whole militia system had collapsed. And uh, uh, they, they weren't really active in the Civil War. They State militias got revived in the late 19th century, but not for a very pleasant purpose. It was They were being used to put down labor unrest, striking mine workers and the like. And then in 1933, the militias got renamed as the National Guard. And that's really uh, the heritage of the militia system now is the National Guard. Now, let's go back to the time of the founding. The subtext of both the Second and the Third Amendments is the fear that the president, President George Washington, might make himself King George and that he might use the federal army to conquer the states. So there was a real states' rights subtext there. You know, you can still hear distant echoes of that kind of fear of the national army of conquering the states in some of the, today's subcultures that uh, fear that the feds are going to send in the black helicopters. You know, there was a really vivid example five years ago in, uh, um, when the U.S. Army was going to do some exercises in Texas. It was called uh, Operation Jade Helm. And immediately there were conspiracy theories all over the place um, that uh, you know, this was Obama about to conquer the state of Texas. And the governor of Texas actually told the Texas Guard to monitor the U.S. Army exercises. And he said, during this training operation, it is important that Texans know their safety, constitutional rights, private property rights, and civil liberties will not be infringed. So that was really the subtext. And if you look at that subtext, then you could see why in the Second Amendment, there'd be language about how important state militias are. And in the Third Amendment, why there would be a constitutional right against the federal government quartering troops in private homes. And the thought was that might be an occupying army. And there really was another subtext or maybe a sub-subtext, and that was the fear by the slaveholding states that someday the federal government would subjugate them by force. So there's also kind of a slavery dimension to that founding era debate over whether there should be a standing army or not. And of course, that debate um, has disappeared. I mean, now we just take it for granted that we have a very powerful army, navy, air force, marine corps, Coast Guard, you know, that, that we, you know, that nobody even knows what standing army means anymore. So the Third Amendment just becomes kind of an oddity because, you know, obviously the, there've never been federal troops that are quartered in people's homes. That's just not the way that our military operates. Uh, there was one kind of quirky case some years back when uh, corrections officers um, went on strike in a prison and the governor uh, brought in troops to uh, um, take over their duties and the troops were living in their homes. And then the corrections officers afterwards said that their third amendment rights had been violated, but they lost. And that's really the only, that oddball case is the only one ever on the third amendment. But of course, the second amendment is just huge. As Professor Luban said, 
The Second Amendment is just huge. Now, this is not a constitutional law course, but let's touch on some of the case law and the direction of those cases to give us a better idea of the Bill of Rights around the Second Amendment and the Supreme Court in general. In recent decades, states have attempted to pass gun control legislation that would limit an individual's access to guns or to a particular type of gun. The U.S. Supreme Court issued rulings on several cases dealing with the Second Amendment. The argument was that gun control legislation gave the government too much power and violated individual liberties. We'll start with the District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008. What the court was reviewing in Heller was a District of Columbia law that effectively prohibited handgun ownership. And then the question was, if the reason underlying the Second Amendment is simply to ensure that individuals have arms uh, that enable them to serve in the state militia, which the modern day version of which is essentially the National Guard, we, we now have a National Guard and there is no issue with having arms available for them. And therefore, the District of Columbia argued and, and others argued, the only plausible claim would be a claim that you have a private right to own a gun, handgun specifically, for private purposes, specifically self-defense. And so what you described earlier, I think quite accurately, as this collective right related to the militia was the interpretation of the Second Amendment that D.C. advanced. And to be honest, that had been the predominant understanding of Heller since the Second Amendment. Heller is a groundbreaking decision because it established for the first time that the Second Amendment provides a private right of having and bearing arms. And at the same time, while this is, this is quite striking, at the same time, the court in Heller was quite clear that the right that it acknowledged, you know, at, at a minimum, and it didn't see the need to go beyond this, is to own a handgun in the home for purposes of defending your home. Justice Scalia said specifically, arms in common use at the time used for self-defense in the home. And he said for various reasons, historical, practical, what have you, the handgun is that. And therefore, the scope of the right that Heller declared is the right to own a handgun to defend your home. Now, that leaves a whole host of other questions uh, unanswered. The court then said that, look, we realize that there is this backdrop of considerable regulation of gun ownership, and we don't purport to dislodge any of that. Therefore, people like felons or the mentally ill can be denied a license to own a gun. Licensing uh, regimes maybe may well be permissible if they're not too onerous. Uh, there can be restrictions on 
possessing a gun near what the court calls sensitive places like churches, schools, and the like. So the court didn't by any means mean to sweep away those regulations that it regarded as legitimate in order to preserve peace and safety of the population. So it defined the right in what you might say is a relatively narrow way. But at the same time, it was significant because now this right is to own a gun for personal purposes, right? for private purposes. It's not limited to participation in the militia. Now, one of the questions is, uh, uh, is what exactly is the right to keep and bear arms? Is it an unlimited right? Well, not according to Heller. Heller says that it doesn't grant, and here I'm going to quote again, a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. But, you know, frustratingly, Heller doesn't say which gun control laws violate the right and which ones don't. So, you know, there's some gun control laws that regulate what kind of weapons you can't have. You can't have sawed-off shotguns. You can't have machine guns. You can't have cop killer ammunition can't have hand grenades. You can't you have bump stocks. Some states have these laws, some states don't, but, uh, but Heller doesn't say that those are unconstitutional. So the big kind of cutting edge of uh, gun control litigation now, which is mostly brought by gun owners to try to expand gun rights, is about what kind of regulations you can have. So the latest case was just uh, this this year, 2020, uh, where the, the regulation at issue was a, a New York regulation about transporting guns. And the question was, is that unconstitutional? Well, it turned out that before the court could decide the case, New York abolished the regulation. So the court ducked the issue and said, we don't have a real case anymore. But some of the justices said, no, we do have a real case and we should have addressed it. So I think that it's, that it's really clear that in the future, uh, the court is going to keep expanding gun rights. Um, I think that, uh, the, um, that Justice Barrett is a very strong defender of gun rights. So I think that, um, we're going to see a lot of litigation about it and that the court is going to expand them. What's called a living constitution, and that means that you change your interpretation of the constitution as reality changes. And here, I think, let, let's just as a thought experiment, try to figure out what issues you'd have to think about then. Well, there are a bunch of them and they cut in opposing directions. One reality is that uh, since the time of the founding, uh, weapons have become so much more lethal. Uh, you know, a single person with an AK-47 can lay down more rounds per minute than an entire regiment of Napoleon's infantry. And you can even see this if you look at mass shooting cases. Uh, the first modern mass shooting case was a guy who was in a tower on the University of Texas uh, campus and began shooting at pedestrians. He, it, it went on for an hour and a half with 16 dead. Fast forward to 2017 in Las Vegas, a guy in a hotel shooting at people in a, um, at a, a concert. 60 dead, not 16. Over 400 wounded, not 30. How much, um, how long did it take? 
five minutes. He fired off a thousand rounds. Um, at the time of the framing, nobody would have imagined that an individual, the weapon could fire off a thousand rounds in five minutes. Now, second factor you might think is a changed reality is that there is an increased frequency of large scale shooting events. Think school shootings, think post Columbine. Uh, you know, the, the, they aren't the they aren't the most common events, and I think that the level of fear they inspire is probably exaggerated. But there's no question that we've seen a lot more of them than you could ever have imagined at the time of the framing. Uh, third thing is that uh, the Second Amendment um, is now kind of a um, political issue, not kind of a political issue. It's really politicized because it's sort of a sign of tribal identity. Which tribe do I belong to? Do I belong to the gun rights tribe or to the gun control tribe? And, you know, there's, you know, I mean, it's no secret that we're very polarized. Now, how might you think about that? Well, Urban settings versus rural settings, people in cities have different views about how natural it is to have guns than people in rural settings. It used to be that uh, hunting was a much bigger sport than it is now. So that the, the idea that, well, everybody has a gun because they want to go hunting, that's not so true anymore. But there's been a big increase in the last decades of gang murders using guns. There's been an increased perception that we're confronted by violent crime. I mean, the statistics don't bear that out over the last few years, but the perception really matters. So that you've got all of these things that have to be balanced against each other when you're interpreting what the right to keep and bear arms would be if you were a living constitution person who thinks that the interpretation should change as reality changes. The fact is, though, that on the current Supreme Court, most of the justices reject living constitutionalism. Um, even you know, Justice Kagan, who's one of the court's liberals, said famously, we're all textualists now. So you know, this debate about what a living constitution would, would say about which gun control regulations are irrational and an infringement on liberty, which ones are reasonable, uh, that's probably not going to be something that the Supreme Court talks about in the near future. Professor Luban makes a good point. The Constitution is a living document. We will see changes to the interpretation of that document throughout our lifetime, our professional careers as naval officers, and as citizens of the United States. Let's shift our gaze now and focus on the Uniform Code of Military Justice and see how private gun ownership is affected by the UCMJ. I'm Lieutenant Commander Liz Jarzik, JAG Corps, United States Navy. I'm an assistant professor of military law in the Leadership, Education, and Development Division. I'm also the law section head here at the United States Naval Academy. There are a couple places in the UCMJ that specifically mention firearms or, or weapons. And throughout the UCMJ, we'll find other places that may curtail your, your gun rights or may implicate gun rights, even if it isn't expressly spelled out. Let's start with an easy one. As a sailor or Marine, can I own a private weapon? 
if you live off base, absolutely, you have the same rights as any citizen of the United States to own a weapon. So you need to comply with local and federal rules about doing that. But the UCMJ does not implicate that in any way. Can I own a weapon aboard a base? So each installation, each base in the military will have its own base instruction for weapons possession. And we couldn't say, hey, you can never own a a gun for base housing, because to do so would be to completely limit those folks' Second Amendment rights. It would be overbroad. It would be an overreach. Now, what we do know out of that Heller case is that we are going to have greater authority to restrict possession of weapons in government buildings. Base housing still qualifies as a government building. So the military has a greater ability to restrict what you can do with that weapon in your base house. And to kind of give you more granularity on that, what most bases do is say, hey, you want to bring a weapon on board, you live on board, you're going to need to first get the permission of the installation commanding officer. Typically, that process includes, you know, rogering up, hey, I've got the proper qualifications and license to own this weapon. It may include your own commanding officer giving kind of an endorsement. Hey, Seaman Timmy is um, of sound mind, no disciplinary issues, no concerns with them owning a weapon, bringing it on board. And then you'll be able to bring it on board. In some installations, you'll be allowed to take that weapon to family housing. And there's going to be restrictions on how you can store it. So you usually have to store it unloaded and locked up in your base housing. But that's family housing. If you live in the barracks or like unaccompanied officer housing, potentially, different installations are going to do different things. But no installation I know of permits a barracks sailor owning or or possessing that weapon in their barracks room. So instead, what you'll need to do is go over to the base security detachment. They'll lock it up in the armory for you. And then if you want to take it out shooting or or take it out to the range or whatever you want to do, you got to check it out and check it back in. So that is something that you wouldn't see in the civilian world. Um, If Seaman Timmy lives in an apartment out in town, he's going to be able to have his weapon in his apartment out in town. The Heller case kind of tells us that the government has greater authority to regulate in specially protected areas. So schools, I think, is an example that's given in that Heller case, government buildings as well. And so it's just an area where the government has a greater interest in preserving safety and well-being. And we've got a bunch of sailors living on top of each other without a lot of space. I think the concern is, um, you know, the weapon malfunctioning or, or anything like that. We don't want it in that small enclosed space, which is why we don't do it in the barracks, but many installations prefer uh, allow you to have it in your family housing because that's more of a detached house situation. So the shipboard regulation is going to depend on what the, the ship CO says. I'm not aware of any ship CO that has said, hey, you can bring your weapon on board, but the installation policy does allow for that. It says, hey, if you are a shipboard sailor, you're going to be, and, and your ship says it's permissible, you may transport your weapon from the gate to your ship in accordance with proper transportation protocols, which include, you know, the guns unloaded in the trunk, the ammunitions in the front as far from the weapon as possible. And you're going to need to give us a heads up, hey, that I'm bringing the weapon from point A to point B. So the UCMJ does not significantly affect your rights to own a firearm as a sailor or Marine. But are there specific provisions within the Uniform Code of Military Justice relating to the use of private weapons? 
Yes, there's a few. So uh, Article 114 covers a bunch of different weapons type offenses. So we've got reckless endangerment, which basically means you behaved in a way with your weapon that endangered the lives of other human beings. And an example would be like if you stored it loaded and unlocked in your house and also you had kids, we would probably say that that's reckless endangerment. You could also maybe make the case for like sweeping the range with your loaded weapon, right? Not keeping it focused down range. You're endangering the lives of folks around you. I think that's more of an NJP level type uh, offense. 114 also deals with dueling. So you are not allowed to, to go Aaron Burr on your shipmates just because your team lost the Super Bowl or whatever pissed you off that week. You also have discharging a firearm as an offense under 114. So if you willfully and wrongfully shoot your gun in a way that endangers human life, that's going to be a problem. So that's not self-defense, right? Because then it wouldn't be wrongfully. Um, An example of this would be like if you saw a snake in your backyard and you decided, hey, I'm going to shoot that snake. Different jurisdictions will have kind of different limits on what when that would be okay. But I'll tell you, if you live in a townhouse development, the houses are right on top of each other and you want to shoot that snake in your backyard, that's probably going to be willfully and wrongfully discharging your firearm because there are other folks around. And then finally, carrying concealed uh, without proper authority would be a crime under Article 114. It's specifically carried out. In addition to 114, Article 134 gives us a variety of ways to criminalize uh, bad behavior with weapons. So we have enumerated offenses under Article 134, specific crimes that are listed out. One of those would be negligent discharge of a firearm. So in this case, you're not intentionally and, and recklessly doing it. You were an idiot and you did it, basically, that we could charge you under 134. 134 also dovetails with what's called the Federal Assimilated Crimes Act. This allows us to charge violations of state and federal law, depending on where you may be. But my point is, if you violate local gun ordinance, there's a chance I could use Article 134 to prosecute you in the military for doing that. And then finally, 134 has what we call the general article, which means I can criminalize, I can punish bad behavior that's not specifically spelled out in the UCMJ if what you did was prejudicial to good order and discipline or service discrediting. So you made us look bad, basically, in the eyes of the public. I tried to think of what an example of that would be, and I think it would be something like you post a TikTok video of you in uniform. Maybe you're drunk and you're waving your weapon around looking all unsafe. Maybe it's unloaded and everyone around you knows that, but the people who are viewing the video think that sailors or Marines are reckless with their weapons and and unregulated individuals. We could maybe take you for 134 on that. We've got a couple others. Um, Assault specifically makes it an aggravated offense if you use a weapon in your assault and then specifically calls out um, guns and deadly weapons. Additionally, Any of those base regulations we talked about, about where you keep and store your firearm and the permissions you would need to get to do that, if you violated any of those, we would charge you under Article 92 for an orders violation. And finally, we know that felony convictions in civilian courts will significantly restrict your ability to own a private weapon. 
What about the UCMJ? Are there prohibitions on gun ownership with a conviction under the UCMJ? So any conviction at a, at a special court-martial would not trigger that Gun Control Act unless it was domestic violence related. Even misdemeanors for domestic violence will prohibit you from owning a firearm. And then if you are convicted at a general court-martial because a year of confinement is on the table, I, there's a handful of offenses we could charge you with that would not authorize that much confinement or not likely to take those to a general. So basically, if you were being prosecuted at a general and you get convicted, you are going to lose your ability to own a firearm. Now, there's a, a pretty tragic story that goes along with this. In um, 2017, a man opened fire on a church and killed 26 people. And it turned out that he had been convicted and discharged from the Air Force for domestic violence-related crimes. And the Air Force did not report that, as they should have, to the FBI. So that information never got entered into the database. And that individual was able to procure a weapon that he then later used in that shooting. So as a result, the inspector general did a deep dive on the services to say, hey, what are you guys doing here? And it turned out that the branches were not really complying as well as they should have been with those requirements. So we now have task forces in place to make sure that we are actually reporting those things to the FBI. Gun rights, overreaching of the federal government, individual rights, it's complicated. While there are no direct analogies between the UCMJ and the Bill of Rights, such as there were with Miranda or 31 Bravo rights, there is an interplay with regard to the Second Amendment and your right to bear arms. This is a wrap on the Bill of Rights series, Amendments 1 through 10, and the 14th Amendment. If you've gotten to this place in the series, we appreciate you sticking with this. This is important to you as a citizen and as a future naval officer. The United States of America is the most powerful military ever created. We have standing federal armies and navies, and that will not change anytime soon. So how do we square that with our fear based in the history of the revolution of powerful centralized government? Probably the best way to look at this is that we are a very different place today than we were 250 years ago. In that time, our military has demonstrated fidelity to the people of the United States, the Constitution of the United States. This fact has been etched into the American psyche, and the U.S. military is willing to go the extra mile to ensure that fidelity to the Constitution. And we are certain that the federal government must not have a monopoly on force. Then again, We've seen, especially in the last few decades, that soft political power as well as cyber power can be a potent expression of resistance to federal tyranny. As we noted above, the Third Amendment has never received a significant constitutional challenge. At the same time, we should expect that the Second Amendment will continue to evolve, evolve as it has from a collective responsibility to an individual right, but within that individual right, we will continue to see an argument about the federal government, as well as the state government's ability to regulate but not restrict firearm ownership. Don't expect to be able to own an M1 Abrams tank for private home protection anytime soon, but expect to see battles in this area in the time to come. Most importantly, 
For a naval officer, this movement will affect your leadership and perhaps even the safety of your crews and your companies. If you, your sailors or Marines, run afoul of the UCMJ, there can be consequences in your Second Amendment rights. Thanks for joining us in working through the Ten Amendments of the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment. This concludes our journey through the Bill of Rights and how they interact and are impacted by the Uniform Code of Military Justice. More importantly, how they both affect you, your sailors and Marines, and the leadership principles you should consider as you enter the fleet and the Fleet Marine Force. Thanks for listening to the Bill of Rights podcast from the Stockdale Center at the United States Naval Academy. This is a series of presentations that covers the interconnections between the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and how the Uniform Code of Military Justice relates to each other. You raised your hand in an oath to the Constitution the first day you got here. Make sure you know what it means. These podcasts are brought to you by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. I'm Michael Sears, the Director of Leadership Innovation, and I'm with my partner, Ensign Aiden Riley. We wrote, edited, and produced this series. Would also like to thank our guests, Professor Doug Rao as James Madison, Professor Mark Nevitt, Professor Jeff McCreese, Professor Mary DeCritico, Professor Brielle Harbin, Professor David Luban, Professor Mitt Regan, Professor Jeff Kossif, Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik, and Colonel Christopher Shaw, United States Marine Corps. Music by My Shot, Lynn Morrell Miranda, music from Hamilton, Luigi Baccarini, Night Music of the Streets of Madrid, Passe Cale, music from Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Words by James Madison and the 55 founding fathers who started this conversation, and we are happy they did. Mm-hmm.